Amen. Awesome. You can be seated. I'm excited. You're here this morning. You ready to hear the word this morning? You can talk with me a little bit. You don't got to be quiet. It's just because it's Christmas. This is a season of joy. That's right. Awesome. Well, um, as you saw in, in the video there, GPC has been able to touch so many different lives. You saw uh, we partnered with a ministry called Rescue Christians where they go into some of the toughest places in the Middle East where Christian families are experiencing persecution and they go, they do awesome covert ops operations and they pull these families out and put them in places uh, where they can have food and water and refuge. So thank you to all of you. Can we just give God a hand that we were able to rescue over six families this year as a church? And bring hope. So this morning, I want to talk uh, out of God's word and uh, along the topic of a divine invasion. Look at your neighbor, neighbor and say, thank God for a divine invasion. I think we can all say that Christmas is a divine invasion. You know, there's an early church father, and I want to read this to you because it, it's going to set the scene uh, for the message this morning, Sarah, you can put it uh, in the back there. But this is what he says, an early 18th century church father, what Christmas is all about. He says, Christmas is nothing less than the invasion of God into his earth. Christmas is nothing less than the invasion of the internal into the temporary. The invasion of the perfect into the imperfect. The invasion of the holy into the unholy, and the invasion of the whole into the partial. Christmas is nothing less than God invading rebel planet Earth to redeem men and women and to make them, to restore them to the very purpose they were made for in the first place. Now look at your other neighbor and say again, thank God for a divine invasion. Go ahead, say it again. That's what we celebrate this morning. So I want to look of where this invasion into our lives was prophesied. We know that between the birth of Christ and the last time the prophets spoke was somewhere of 400 years where they were longing for a word of God. And when Jesus the Messiah came, everything changed in that moment. But look of what the prophecy out of the book of Micah, of what it was foretold. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, David's country... I love what it says here, the runt of the litter. I was thinking about that, that if you were to pull out your phones and go on TripAdvisor and you were thinking about visiting Bethlehem, this is a, uh, would be a review that would, would be left that, okay, Bethlehem's the runt of the litter. We want to stay out of there. And what's funny is if you actually go and you read reviews on Bethlehem or what the landscapes or what that town has to offer, it's still in a tough uh, position where, you know, people are kind of like, okay, Bethlehem, nothing too uh, incredible about that. So the prophecy is saying the runt of the litter, but how, much, how many of you know and you've experienced that God can do amazing things out of places that nobody would ever expect something amazing to happen? So it says, it says, from you will come the leader who will shepherd rule Israel. He'll be no upstart, no pretender. So this isn't fake news. We can trust this. This isn't fake news this morning. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. Can we actually read that last part together? His family tree is ancient and distinguished. You know what's neat is if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, 
you'll see where Jesus' family tree, his bloodline, his lineage, his genealogy is read. And uh, what's funny is we love like Luke, or Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, where it gets into the good stuff, the shepherds, the angels, uh, you know, the Mary and Joseph, their journey. But I don't know about you, but sometimes when you get and see a lot of names and it says so-and-so begat so-and-so, you're like, yeah, I'm going to skip that part and get to the good stuff. <laughs> but as I was reading this, I'm like, man, there is some good stuff in the genealogy of Jesus of how his family tree is ancient and distinguished. Now, I don't know if you're sitting in here, you enjoy ancestry, you enjoy doing family trees. Uh, in that time, you have to understand that the family tree, the genealogy, really defined who you were. If you had a good family tree, if you had a, a bloodline, it was going to get you in circles that other people couldn't get into. It would give you p chances of political power, ch uh, chances of influence, all because of your bloodline. Now today, if we have a good bloodline or we might figure out, wow, I was related to a president, it's kind of a novelty and it's something awesome to figure out, but just because you're related to a president usually isn't going to get you really anything in life in the, in the day and time we live in. But in this time, your genealogy was everything. And I was thinking, what's the best way I could describe this? Your genealogy was almost like a resume. That when people would see your gene genealogy, your bloodline in that time, it was like a resume of saying, hey, look where I've come from. And when you look to where I've come from and considering me for a position, for a job, for uh, somewhere to live, you've got to see who is in my bloodline. Quickly, I want us to look at a couple of scriptures in Matthew chapter 1 where it talks of the bloodline of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 says that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Matthew 1 verse 5 says that Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Matthew 1 6 says that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba and the widow of Uriah. Skip to verse 16. It says that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. And all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So we see here, I wanted to pull some of those names out here in a minute and get to really what I believe a deep picture of what Christmas is and what it's all about. And you know what's neat? And something I was thinking of, and uh, Sarah, if you put a picture up of our preschool Christmas play that we had here at the school, you know, this is, isn't, doesn't this just melt your heart? This is uh, one of our four-year-olds, and uh, she was standing over here and just worshiping God in our Zion Christian Academy Christmas play. And as I was sitting there watching, and they told the stories of the shepherds and of Mary and Joseph, we get just this sense of a warmth and just a cuteness of Christmas which it is, and it's especially adorable when our children share it, right? They can't do anything wrong at that point. But I kind of took a step back, and I thought to myself that, man, Christmas, it looks good from a distance. To you and I kind of being spectators and uh, just reading, we know the whole story of Christmas, but if you put yourself in the place of maybe the perspective of the shepherds or maybe this perspective of Joseph where we talked about how God can mess up your plans, uh, when you put yourself in that perspective, it's not as nice and cute and warm and cuddly. 
but it's actually kind of scary. It actually takes a lot of faith. It takes the way they had to trust God. You have to think at that time, too, that the crazy, insecure King Herod made a decree that all babies under the age of two were to be killed surrounding the area of Bethlehem because he didn't want an uprising or someone to take his place. You go and you look into that. Just think about this. Think about all the families and parents. Yes, they're awaiting the Messiah, but then at the same time, there's mothers literally wailing and in sorrow because soldiers have stormed into their house, grabbed their babies, and killed them right on the spot. So think about the surrounding area of that city, that families are distraught and, and just hopeless. And this is the era or really the vibes that were going on in the city of where Jesus was born in. And so again, going back to Jesus' bloodline, we have to understand that the bloodline was like a resume. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but say uh, in your work life, you work some jobs that you might have not been so proud of. You might have got fired. Anybody ever been fired before? Come on, you don't have to be ashamed. Okay, a couple of you, you get it. <laughs> or you might have not has been, uh, you know, you didn't like the job, so you just didn't show up one day. Anybody ever been there before? I'd, you can be honest. It's church, come on. <laughs> Judge-free zone. But what's, what's funny is about a resume is we tend, and I, again, I know none of us in here would ever do this, but we tend not to be as honest when we left a job we didn't do too well. We're like, I think I'm going to leave that reference out for this next job I'm about to go to. We look at Jesus' resume. We look at his bloodline. When you read it and you get into the depth of it, you're going to find out that Jesus was a little too honest about who he put in his resume, who he put in his bloodline. Here in a second, you're going to see that some of the branches in his family tree are pretty twisted. So look at who we read first. Matthew 1.5 says that Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, if you know anything about Rahab, before you even get into who Rahab was, it is a huge deal that Jesus would even put a woman in his bloodline, in his resume, because in the ancient times, women were considered less than, they were treated poorly. And this should excite you, and this should encourage you about who Jesus was and, and the Roman culture that he entered into. Jesus did more than anybody to elevate women and to give them purpose, to give them identity. So it's huge that there's five other women you'll see in Jesus' bloodline that Jesus put inside of that in his resume to say, hey, look at such and such. Because if you were trying to be honest and really put yourself out there to show someone, hey, I want you to notice me, I want you to see how good my resume is, how good my bloodline is, you, at that time you would have not included a woman, let alone five other women. Now, if you know anything else about Rahab, it's very interesting, the woman that he would choose to put in it. Rahab, if you didn't know, is known in the book of Joshua as Rahab, Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. So we see in the Messiah, Jesus Christ's bloodline, prostitution. Now, if you, again, were Jesus, would you want to be that honest and put that in your resume? I think a lot of us would say no. So we see that there. Matthew 1, 3, we see that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now this one 
is interesting. If you look at the story of Judah and Tamar, you would understand that uh, Judah, who had three sons and gave his first son to Tamar, his uh, first son, heir, had died, and so Tamar was left a widow. And out of being a widow, the, the rite of passage at that time was Judah's second son would be given to Tamar and then would continue on that line. Well, Judah's second son wasn't going to have it, so he didn't uh, do what his father had commanded him, and Tamar starts to grow tired of being single. Anybody ever been in that place, tired of being single? When you get tired of being single, you usually make bad decisions. I've been there. You try to help God along the process a little bit. And so this is where it gets kind of crazy and gets kind of scandalous. You guys can lean in a little bit now. So we see a scandal start to, uh, about to take place in the story where Tamar's tired of being single, so she decides, you know what? I want to be in the line. I want to be in the family. So I'm going to disguise myself as a prostitute. You can go and you can read the story. And so she disguises herself, and she knows Judah has a weakness where he'll sneak away at night and go into town and be friendly with women. And so Tamar... Again, here it is, Judah is Tamar's father-in-law, so that's gross in and of itself. <laughs> Come on, this is Christmas, y'all. It's not so nice and neat as we thought it was. I'm trying to tell you. And so Tamar sneaks away, disguises herself, and sleeps with Judah. And then Judah and Tamar have a baby. So if you, again, were reading this in the ancient times, that is what you would be seeing right there. So again, if you were Jesus and your resume, would you be that honest? Probably not. So we have prostitution off his family tree. We have scandal off his family tree. Y'all ready to see what's next? <laughs> yeah. Start praying. Matthew 1.6, we read, Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, we know the story of David pretty well. We see here uh, where David, you know, King David, again, if you were to even put this on your resume at the time, you would just point everything to David because David at that time was the pinnacle of success. The way he built the kingdom, everyone wanted to be close to David. So if you were being honest on your resume, you would just put David and wouldn't include anything else. But since we're talking about David, let's look a little deeper. We see right here, why would you include, why would you bring up a past marriage in the first place? We know what that feels like, some of us. So we see right here, Uriah's wife was the mother. First of all, we know uh, the story of, of David and Bathsheba, where David looked upon Bathsheba. He wanted her. He took her and uh, slept with Bathsheba. And so we see adultery enter into the picture here with David. But not only that, the story doesn't stop there. We know what, content, what goes to happen where David should have been out at battle with his right-hand man, Uriah. We know that David, because of lust and greed and, and not being in the will of God at the time, a man after God's own heart we know is David. We see that David doesn't want to address his mess. So you know the story. He goes and, and sends Uriah to the front line to be killed in battle so that he could have Bathsheba 
for himself. So not only does adultery enter into the picture, but we see murder enter into the picture. So from scandal to prostitution to adultery to murder, this is in the bloodline of Jesus. So whatever family issues you have, Jesus has seen it all. So again, we see Jesus being honest. You know what I love here? Again, is Jesus owns the twistedness of his tree. And I was thinking, our twistedness, what we deal with, all started at a tree, right? In the Garden of Eden. You know, someone had sent me an article a few weeks ago. Sarah, if you put this picture up, uh, you might have seen this. It happened last year around Christmas. There's uh, a lady who gets up Christmas morning before the kids get up. Any moms or parents, you get that joy of getting up before your kids are up. My parents would never know what that felt like because we were up at 4 o'clock every Christmas morning ready to rip open gifts. We would go and wake them up, actually. We wouldn't allow them to wake up when they wanted to. So this lady, and it happened in Australia. She goes down. She's drinking her cup of coffee before the craziness of Christmas morning happens. And she just starts looking at her tree. And, you know, you might see an ornament, another ornament, and a serpent (laughs) right there in the tree. And so we, she wakes up, she freaks out, she calls animal control, comes to find it's one of the most poisonous snakes in Australia, has wrapped itself around in the fake tree in her living room. So with that, as I came across that story, let's go to the Garden of Eden where we see our sin, our brokenness, where it all started. Genesis 3, 4 through 6 says, the serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows the moment you eat from the tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating, somebody say good eating, and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. So she took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate. And so we see right here, as we progress forward, we see at that moment, we know in the Garden of Eden, when spiritual death and physical death came upon the scene. And again, as Jesus owned the twistedness of his tree, and we look at where the twistedness of our tree started, we see that the miracle of Christmas is not just a holiday But it is a divine invasion, a rescue mission where Jesus came to own what was in our life and give us freedom and give us power. You know, I was also thinking, uh, I remember at the beginning of our December Christmas talks, me and Bree shared a story of how this year we wanted to be brave and bold and actually go and get a real Christmas tree and put it in our living room. And we uh, made the mistake, should have never done it, uh, shared the story of, uh, going and getting the Christmas tree, bringing it into the house, throwing it on my shoulder. Bree went up to use the bathroom. I had it in the house even before she got out of the bathroom. I was ready. I was feeling good. We're going to do this. We get in the house. The tree was too tall. It's scraping the top of the uh, ceiling in the living room. So like every other good husband does, you go and you get the closest tool in the kitchen. So I go and I get a steak knife. You know, We're going to make this work. So I'm getting the steak knife. I start sawing off the top of the tree and gouge right into my finger, and blood starts gushing everywhere. But praise God, because it didn't get on the carpet. <laughs> and so at that, at that moment, I, 
you know, as all the craziness was happening, another thought had come to me that, um, you know, we wanted to get a real Christmas tree. And again, we did it classy. We got it out of a Kroger parking lot. Um, and so when we got this real Christmas tree, you know, the big thing is you see the signs in the parking lot saying this tree is alive. It's real. But really, when you think about it, it's not because it's cut off from its root system. You see the thing, it's just chopped from, from the bottom up. It's just, you know, it has the appearance of being alive, but we know that it's not really alive because it doesn't have a root system, isn't planted, isn't grounded. That's the same with our spiritual death. When, sin, when we taste sin in our life, you don't see the effects of it right away. You can still get that Christmas tree, and it's sitting in our living room now. It looks awesome. But how do you know when New Year's starts to roll around, it's going to start flaking, it's going to start turning brown, and you're going to start to see the effects of it being cutting off from its root source. And so again, we have to know, looking at Jesus' bloodline, that in what in general life is all about, and something, you know the old saying that there's something you can never escape. One is death and the other is taxes. But in this season, hey, some tax cuts have happened, so we're getting closer. <laughs> but on the other hand, we all have to face death. One day, we will have an appointment with death, whether it's, God forbid, a cancer, a car accident, of old age, whatever it may look like. One day, we're all going to have to stare death in the eyes. And really what the Bible describes as hell and what Christmas is all about and why we need a Savior and why we need this miracle of a divine invasion in our life is because being dead spiritually and then dying physically, being dead spiritually and then dying physically is what the Bible would call as hell. In this life, we have the opportunity and the privilege and the honor to receive and accept Jesus in our life to wake us up spiritually. And if that waking up never happens and we die physically, then that's what the Bible would call is hell. But look, what, after Eve had taken the fruit and she had sinned and had given it to Adam and they both had sinned and experienced spiritual and physical death at that moment, look what the Bible says in Genesis 3.15. I love what it says here. And this could be a whole series of message. But God says, I am declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head. You'll wound his hill. So we know because of Christmas, God made good on the promise where he's saying, you're going to have the authority and the power to crush the skull of the enemy when you have Jesus in your life. Look what 1 Peter 2, 24 even says. He says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Somebody say tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You know, Jesus didn't give us a gift, a present, and put it under the tree. He put his gift on the tree. Christmas, in its essence, is really all about Easter, because that's when the fulfillment of it all comes about. But you can't get to Easter without going to Christmas first. And that's what I want you to hear this morning is when you see the beauty and the faith it took for Christmas to happen, a divine invasion took place where heaven 
came into earth. Because in this life, it's not about, I said a prayer once, and I'm going to live with Jesus one day and live in heaven. God's best for all of you is for heaven to come and live within you and heaven be all around you. The miracle of Christmas makes that possible. And when we come to church, we get in our word, we seek God with all we are, invasions take place in our life. It's not a one-time thing, but it is a daily thing where you say, God, come and invade my life. And I was thinking of, of the analogy of what an invasion looks like. Is imagine a bucket of water. And when something drops in that bucket of water, everything sloshes out except what is in that. When God invades your life with who he is, with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his love, with his grace, and with his mercy, when that drops in, everything that's not like him sloshes out. That's a good place to say amen. Amen. That when we allow the invasion of God to happen, everything that's not like him sloshes out of our life. And we can be who we were created to be. You know what's neat? And I really want you to see this as we looked at, at the family tree of Jesus. But you have to know that was on his mother's side. Now here's where it gets good. On his father's side is where the divinity and where the power of it is. So we see that Jesus on his mother's side, he, you have to understand this about Christmas too. And this is the power and the beauty of the gospel. Is he just didn't die for us. He died as though he was us. He loved us that much that he died as though he was us. He took the price that we owed and paid it. And so we see all the prostitution, the scandal, the adultery, the murder, the lying, the sin, our nature he took on one side, but on the other side is his father's. And you can go and read it in one scripture, and it's John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. That is his father, where he took the hand of humanity and the hand of divinity, brought them together, and in that moment, we see Christmas happen, where we have a savior, and we have hope, and we have joy, and we have grace for our life. Amen. You guys getting that this morning? That's what the miracle of Christmas is. He entered into our pain. He identified with it. You don't have to stay in your dysfunction. You don't have to stay in your mess because of the bloodline of Jesus. What do we pray all the time? We plead the blood of Jesus over our life. When you do that, that's where the power is. And it's because of his divinity that we have purpose in our life. I want you to look at this. And I want you to be encouraged and, and take this away. It says that God has taken on flesh so that men might become engodded. God has become a baby so that we might finally grow up. God has become weak so that he could forever banish our weakness. God has made himself poor so that we could escape our spiritual poverty. Christmas is a celebration of God invading rebel planet Earth. And he is invading it. You need to hear this, because this is the heart of the Father this morning. Not to punish you. He is invading his world not to condemn you, not to make you feel bad about your sins or feel bad about your mistakes. God is invading his planet to rescue you to defeat the enemies that are keeping you enslaved to your selfishness. 
and your fear and your small-mindedness about why you were made in the first place. God has come on a divine rescue mission, invading his earth to destroy sin, death, and the devil on your behalf. Christmas is when God made good on the promise that we can destroy the head of the enemy, that whatever the struggle or the circumstances in your life, there is power for your life by the blood and the power of Jesus. I want you to bow your head and I want to close your eyes. I want to pray for you this morning. Jesus, we just come before you right now. We thank you, Father, for the divine invasion. God, we ask right now that whatever is going on in our life, the hustle, the bustle of Christmas, with it being Christmas Eve, God, this is what it's all about. It's about opening up ourselves and allowing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come and take residence in our life. God, because of the cross, when we choose to follow you, we sign ownership over of our lives to you, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now, you know your people. You know those here with circumstances, with decisions they're facing, family situations, God, I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would invade their lives with the peace, with the hope, with the joy of Christmas. You're not scared by our mess. You're not ashamed of our messes. But Father, you came to heal us, to rescue us, and to save us with the power of Jesus and by the power of Christmas. So right now, we just ask Holy Spirit to invade our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Invade us, touch us, heal us. Father, we thank you that by grace we can become what you are by nature. That when the word of God came and it dwelled among us, it gave us hope and gave us peace everlasting. You know, right now with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed and as you're connecting with God you know you might feel that tug of the Holy Spirit maybe you're one where you've been far from God or maybe there's a situation in your life where you've exhausted everything and you feel that you just can't figure it out well with the miracle of Christmas he gives us the power and the grace fully destroy the enemy's hand off of our life. So right now, nobody's looking around. Maybe you came to church this morning, somebody invited you, or maybe you drove all the way from a different state to be here and visit family. But I believe God has an invasion for your life. He wants to touch you, not to condemn you, not to say, I told you so, but to heal your life. If that's you, and you've never had an opportunity or you feel that you've backslid from God and you want to be close to him again and invite the miracle of Christmas into your life, Jesus says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he'll invite you in. He'll make a place for you at the table. So if that's you and you feel 
God pulling on your heart right where you're at. I just want you to lift your hand and I just want to pray with you. Take a moment of faith. Lift your hand. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Brother, I see you back there. Praise God. Ma'am, I saw you right there. Praise God. Now what I want to do, you guys can open your eyes. Now sir, you just want to make a decision. Now what the Bible says that when you publicly confess before man, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he says, I'll publicly confess you before my Father. So what I want you to do, sir, is I want you to take a step of faith and I want you to come right here and I want to pray with you and we're going to encourage you and we're going to clap and let's celebrate the decision that you just made. Can we welcome him into the family of God?